now. Okay, let's get this web conference underway. We'll start with a karakia. Puna here to po to po thirty minutes. Toma kia te ao te ao fatitanga. Atai kiromo, atai kiraro, atai ahura. Namie kuie pai kie. Yora Tato, Haere mai, and welcome to our Alpine Fault Natural Hazards Virtual Field Trip, which is supported by EQP. And with us this morning for our live web conference, we've got Carolyn here, Alice, and myself, Shelley Learns Field Trip Teacher. And we're in Harihari, which is north of Franz Joseph Waiau, where we've come from this morning through the... Uh, very heavy rain, there's lots of flood signs around and a bit of water over the road. So we're being reminded that the West Coast is a very dynamic landscape, gets lots and lots of weather. The mountains mean that we get heavy rain here. While you guys on the East Coast, Barry in the Loons office in Christchurch is in sunshine, while we're in the rain. So you can find out more about that effect that the mountains has on the weather if you Google the orographic effect, but we're certainly experiencing that today here in Harihari. So we're at South Westland Area School in the library, and Alice is going to be taking the school through an earthquake roadshow, and they're going to be finding out more about the Alpine Fault, and we're going to share some of those sessions with you in the videos, which you can look at tomorrow. So we've also got with us this morning, our ambassadors. We've got Walt from Island School and Maya, the Cheeky Learns Ambassador, who comes on all my field trips to keep me in line. And they've really enjoyed being in Taipatini, Westland. So we'll get underway with questions. Um, our speaking school could not join us this morning because they've had um, something happened at their school and they can't get out of that, but they have sent us lots of great questions. And Barry in the Learns Office is going to ask those questions on their behalf. Cool. Question one. What are the differences between a normal earthquake and an alpine fault earthquake? Mm, good question. Yeah, it is a good question. Um, I guess they're all earthquakes, you know, an earthquake's an earthquake. An earthquake happens when one side of a fault moves compared to the other side. And some of these earthquakes happen on small faults and some of them happen on really big faults. And with the Alpine Fault, it just happens to be a very big, long fault. It's 600 kilometers long. And so an earthquake on a fault that size produces quite a big earthquake. In fact, a magnitude eight earthquake. So that's sort of something about the length of the fault and the size of earthquakes that those sorts of faults can produce. Thank you. Thanks, Carolyn. And next question. Number two, will a tsunami happen if the Alpine Fault ruptures? If so, will it be different to other tsunamis? How and why? Mm, another, mm, another really good one. question, yeah. So I'm not sure if you were here on Tuesday when we were having our live conference and we talked about the Alpine Fault and whether it's on land or whether it goes on to the uh, out to sea. Now the Alpine Fault is mostly on land. It only goes off the coast right down at Milford Sound 
And so that might be the part of the Alpine Fault that produces a small tsunami during an earthquake. But there's a different kind of tsunami that might happen as well. And that's called a rockfall tsunami. And it happens when a lake has big mountains around it. And sometimes rocks fall off, uh, off the side and plunge down into, into a lake or a fjord. Something like that could happen at Milford or down in the fjords as well. And when that happens, the rockfall plunges down into the, into the lake and it produces a wave. And the wave would move just like a tsunami would around the lake. And so one of the things that we tell people when we're out and about talking about earthquakes is that if you're around a lake or a river, uh, when there's a big earthquake, you should try and move away from the lake uh, and get up away from the edge of the lake or away from the edge of the river to look after yourself. Mm. Mm. And, and that's a good point because today while we were traveling, we passed uh, the landslide uh, area that we looked at yesterday and there was a massive waterfall coming down it that wasn't there yesterday with all the rain. And I just thought, wow, if there was an earthquake, there would be so much rockfall that would come down there. And who knows what would happen to the river? It might all get dammed up um, and then suddenly get released later on, even That's right. days after the earthquake. Who knows? But yeah, the rivers can be a very dangerous place to be um, during and after an earthquake. So that's a really good point. Thanks. Question three. How do we prepare for a one in every 300 year event? Yeah, that's a really great question. And it's one I think about quite a lot in my job. Because um, uh, my job is sharing a lot of the information we have from about the Alpine Fault and how we can be better prepared. Uh, we can't know exactly when an earthquake is going to happen. We don't know exactly where it will start or how it might feel. But we can share all the knowledge we do have to be better prepared for these events. So we can't predict them. But by sharing the, the science and the technology and also our experiences and our local knowledge, it really does help us be more, I guess, mentally prepared, but also helps us understand what we need to do in an earthquake. And the best thing to do, obviously, is to, to drop cover and hold as soon as we feel some shaking. Yeah. Thanks, Alice. And that's what Alice's job is all about, is uh, communicating with people and making sure that they understand the science and can put that into the context of where they live and be prepared for any natural hazards that exist in their area. And today we're thinking more along the lines of natural hazards like flooding than earthquakes. So we need to think about what, what happens most in our environment and, and thinking about being prepared for those, but also, like you say, being aware of those events that don't happen very often um, in a given a probability of once every 300 years or something, but that doesn't really mean a lot other than we know that they're not common. We don't know exactly when they're going to happen. Yeah, and I think one thing just to add is it's easy to, when things aren't moving, when earthquakes aren't happening, yeah. things are shaking, the, the, um, it can be easy to remember, to forget that they will happen again. So being able to talk about them is really important to remind ourselves that, yeah, we do need to think about these things even when they're not happening. Mm, yes, indeed. Thanks, Alice. Question four. Tsunamis, floods, and the White Island eruption are all natural disasters. How is preparing for an Alpine Fault earthquake different to preparing for these disasters? 
Yeah, that's a great question. So with tsunamis and floods and, and, the, and eruptions uh, and weather events, similar to sort of what we're having at the moment, uh, we get we often get a little bit of a warning. So we might see the weather forecast or with a tsunami, we might feel an earthquake first and it might, might feel long or strong, which means like Caroline says, we should move away from the water area, we should get gone. But with an earthquake, we don't really get that kind of warning. So that's really the main, the main difference. And that sort of follows on from that previous question, where I think that's where it's really important to just keep reminding ourselves and keep talking about these things in between times. So they don't give us so much of a fright when they do happen. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's really important that knowing what to expect helps us to prepare mm. if, if it's a surprise and we don't know what it is then we don't know how to react and that's why this field trip is so important for everyone mm. and next question please question five where would a safe place where would be a safe place during an alpine fault earthquake and how can we best be prepared for one yeah that's an excellent question so when we have an alpine fault earthquake uh, most of us in New Zealand are going, are going to feel it. We're going to feel it either a little bit or quite a lot. Um, so finding a safe place is really those, those three really key words is to drop, drop cover and hold where you are. And sometimes we think about, oh, maybe we should run to the doorway. But if everybody runs to the same doorway, then we probably all won't fit in that doorway. So it makes it really difficult to be safe. So the best advice I can have is to drop cover and hold where you are and protect yourself until that shaking stops. Thanks. Shelley and I actually shared a doorway in the Christchurch earthquake. And I think oh. we were already standing there, which is why we kind of crammed yeah. in there. Um, and the other people in our office just dropped covered and hold and were and, and held on under their desks. So yeah. Andrew, who's in the background here, he was uh, under his desk. And so was Paul. Um, yeah, and I stood in the doorway during the Greendale fault because um, that was beside my bed. And now I would probably just drop cover and hold. Yeah, and one of the reasons it's, it's a good idea not to try and move is because you can imagine when the ground is shaking quite that much, it's quite easy to fall over and hurt yourself as well. Mm. So that's why, we, that's why the best thing to do is to drop cover and hold where you are at the time. And don't think about it too much, just get safe. Mm. Yep, understood now. <laughs> um, number six, what is the anticipated radius of damage from an AF8 rupture? Yeah, that's a good question too. So um, we've done a bit of work to try and understand how big, we call it the footprint of an earthquake might be in terms of where the damage is going to be felt. And um, most of the damage will be around the, the mountains, the high mountains, the southern Alps of the South Island, but there will be damage on the eastern side of the Alps as well, out towards Christchurch and up into Blenheim and uh, Marlborough and Nelson and Tasman as well. Now, this is just one particular way the Alpine Fault might um, release an earthquake. It could do it in lots of different ways and, you know, there might be damage in places that we didn't expect. But for the most part, if you're, in the, if you're in the mountains or the hills around the Southern Alps, that's where most of the damage is going to be felt on the western side, on the west coast. Yeah. So it'd be slightly different if it ruptured at the northern end as opposed to the southern end, considering it's 600 k's long? 
Yeah, that's right. So uh, it does make a difference where the earthquake starts. If it starts up at the northern end of the fault, up around where you guys are, um, a lot of the energy off that fault is going to move down towards the south. And so there will be more, potentially more damage down towards the southern end of the fault. Yeah. Thanks. Question seven, would a rupture of the Alpine Fault affect the weather and would it cause other earthquakes? Mm, I like this question. It's yeah. really interesting. It's a very interesting one, one because people do often claim that there's a connection between earthquakes and the weather. Um, and there is, in fact. So when earthquakes happen, the way that things uh, then sort of happen after that will have an effect if it's a strong storm or bad weather in the days after a big earthquake. And so let's say you have the earthquake and then there's a big storm, that's going to affect the way all the landslides come down the rivers and how much water is coming out of the mountains and things like that. So it will have an impact on the in the days, weeks, and even years after a big earthquake on the Alpine Fault. Um, some people say there's this thing called earthquake weather, and they say, well, the weather was really strange before that earthquake happened. There's really no scientific evidence to say that that's a real thing. But it doesn't, it doesn't stop people having those feelings that, well, it was a very hot, humid day before that earthquake happened, and maybe there was a connection. But in reality, there probably isn't. And would it cause other earthquakes, the Alpine Fault? Yeah, good. Yeah, sorry, I missed that. But yes, it will. So um, after big earthquakes, there's always aftershocks. So the aftershocks will start straight away. Some of them might be quite small. There'll be lots and lots of small ones. And there might be a few big ones as well. So you have to be kind of mentally prepared for the fact you've had this big earthquake, but now there are going to be lots of other ones that come after that as well. So that's really quite scary. And it, it's, it's hard to, you know, keep thinking about, oh, when's the next one going to hit? But that's just the reality when earthquakes, big earthquakes happen. So after the Greendale one and then the Christchurch one, and then there was one that that was uh, September, the Christchurch one was in February, and then there was another one in June that was quite big. But we were having up to level five earth, uh, aftershocks for months, possibly even a year, and we just got used to them. But yeah, sort of. <laughs> um, question eight. What do you wish New Zealanders would do to be prepared? Brilliant question. Yeah. So some of the things I've already mentioned this morning is just, just being able to talk about earthquakes. Earthquakes are quite a scary thing when they happen, and it can kind of feel a bit scary to talk about them. But they do happen in New Zealand. And the more we share our knowledge and the more we talk about these events, the easier it is for us to be prepared. Some other things that are really great to do is to practice your drop cover hold. So we just had the nationwide uh, shakeout drill, which happens all across New Zealand in October. So practicing that so that you can remind, so you remind yourself that's what you do when it starts shaking. That's a really cool thing to do as well. Another thing that's good to practice is what we call a tsunami hikoi which is where you move away from your, if you live near the coast, then you can move away from the coast and find your high ground. Or for people who are inland, sort of identifying some of the lakes that you might not want to be near in an earthquake, which is really around knowing your environment and understanding where you live so that you can keep safe and start shaking. And there's lots of great information online. So your local 
civil defence group uh, in Hokitaka. You have a West Coast civil defence group and they have a Facebook page and a website with lots of great information. And there's loads of that stuff all around the country, no matter where you are. And there's also resources on the EQC website under Be Prepared, which teaches you sort of how to secure your home so that things don't fall on you in an earthquake as well. So yeah, there's lots of things you can do, but really just learning more and sharing more of information is really a great place to start. Go home and talk to mum and dad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep, sometimes um, it's up to you guys to tell adults about what you're learning about because you're getting the latest and greatest information. Whereas when they went to school, mm, they probably didn't. So they might need some, some information from you guys. <laughs> so well done for taking part in the field trip. Well, thanks to our speaking school. Unfortunately, they couldn't be with us, but they will be able to listen to the recording. Um, so it was great to get their questions. And thanks very much to Carolyn and Alice for your great answers. In the meantime, um, Canary School, if you want to ask us any questions, you are most welcome. Um, we'll stick around for a few minutes to ask, answer any of those. I've got one to get us started. You guys had a video you made yesterday that's on the Google Earth Tour as well um, with a local resident who said that they were everybody was really aware of the, the Alpine Fault earthquake. So... Um, why do you need a, a roadshow to go around the West Coast if people seem like they already know a lot? Yeah, really cool question. So we, we run a roadshow all around the South Island because the Alpine Fault isn't just a West Coast hazard. It will affect us all in different ways. And so some, one of the reasons we travel around and talk about it so much is to really encourage people to share that sort of information between each other. And like I said before, sometimes when the ground's not moving, it's easy to sort of be a bit forgetful that we do have earthquakes. So by keeping on talking about them and sharing all the latest information and knowledge we have, we can, we can sort of help keep that conversation going and hopefully be better prepared for when it does start shaking. Indeed. There's quite a few hands up in that class. So maybe someone's going to be chosen to come up. See a teacher organised for that, or you can pop it in the chat window. Our first, well, my first thought of when we were um, talking about uh, earthquakes is we'd never actually, as a school, considered the fact that the river is quite near to our school, so that there would be something we'll have to factor into our planning. Uh, Lincoln, your question, please. Do you want to come up, please, and ask a question? How old is the Alpine Fault? Probably a few, probably a bit more than that, actually. Um, we've known about the Alpine Fault for about 80 years. Uh, in the 1940s, a really clever geologist discovered the fault. But yeah, it's been around for a long time. And we know that because some rocks are on one side of the, the fault and the same rocks are on the other side, but are way further away, and they've been moved apart because of earthquakes on the fault over a long, long time. And so, yeah, it's a very, it's an old fault, millions of years old. Great question. Have we got any other questions? Oh, we have, excellent. Hang on, I'm just asking them to unmute. 
Um, what's the biggest fault earthquake that's ever happened and whereabouts was it? Mm. Okay, so we've been talking about a magnitude 8 earthquake on the Alpine Fault. There was a much, much bigger uh, earthquake in Chile in 1960. It was a magnitude 9.6. Now that's a huge earthquake. That's much, much bigger than a magnitude 8 earthquake. Um, and so that one was interesting because it sent a big tsunami from Chile, which is way out to the west of us in New Zealand. It sent a tsunami right across the Pacific Ocean. And actually we felt it in New Zealand. We had an, a tsunami in New Zealand in 1960 because of that big earthquake. What would happen if you're next to the Alpine Fault and there was an Alpine Fault earthquake? Mm. And this is something we've been thinking about a lot yeah. during our time staying here. You might have seen us right on the fault in the video from the other day. Um, it would not be very good. Let's be honest. It wouldn't be very good at all if you were right on the fault when this thing happened. Because when the fault moves, it's going to move um, with some horizontal movement. So around sort of eight or 10 meters of a shift from, from one side of the fault to the other. Um, and so if you happen to be standing on the fault at that time, you'd certainly be knocked off your feet. And I guess the other thing for us to think about is that if our roads or our bridges or our buildings are sitting right on the fault itself, they're gonna get really badly damaged during a big earthquake like that. And so we try and think about where we put our infrastructure and keep it away from the fault where we know the fault is. Um, but sometimes it's not always possible. So in those places, the damage will be very bad. Yeah, it's, it's quite funny. All this talk of earthquakes and being on the West Coast and I do lots of outdoor stuff. So I'm always a little bit aware of this. The, the biggest thing when I go to bed at night, I always think about where's my shoes? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I do not want to be wandering around in bare feet yes. um, if I have to evacuate a building or I have to get to a welfare centre or if the building's not in a good shape. I definitely want something on my feet and, and I want some, some warm clothing. So I, I always think about, okay, so where's my jacket? Where's my shoes? Mm -hmm. Can I get to them? My phone might be there. If sure. You know, there's just little things like that that can really make a big difference. Yeah. These little things are good fun too, because they're, I mean, little rechargeable things that you can just wind up. Oh, your torch there, nice. And um, well, I've had this since, uh, and now it, now it goes, doesn't need any batteries. Um, and it's got a radio, so it doesn't need anything, doesn't need any power or things like that. So these sorts of things are really handy, and I used to, I keep this beside my bed. Mm. Yep. Right, if there was an earthquake far away, would you hear it coming? Mm. Ah, yeah, that's, a question. A, that's a good question. Yep, yeah. you definitely can hear things sometimes, depending on where it is. We've had lots and lots of reports of people hearing 
sort of a big rumbling sound and lots of noise before the earthquake gets to them especially when an earthquake happens in the hills because you know there's a lot of stuff that will start falling down a few landslides um, here and there so that all makes noise doesn't it mm -hmm. and when the earthquake gets to you often there will be a noise beforehand in fact Shelley you might did, did you hear a noise before the Christchurch earthquakes that you experienced no no and I think that was probably because they were so close to where we were yeah. um, and it was really interesting because I, I lived out by the coast um, in an area called South Shore so basically on a sand spit and we got heaps and heaps of aftershocks and we got all varieties we got the don't hear it and it's just a big um, slap yep. it's just a big um, big jolt and then we got the rumbly wavy ones and sometimes we even got the ones where you could hear something kind of going past and see the shaking but not really feel it where you were mm, so it so all depended on where that earthquake was centered so I kind of came to the conclusion that no two earthquakes are the same <laughs> you got lots of experience yeah well one thing I do on my road show by going around and talking to people is that earthquakes the earthquakes have two waves the first wave is called a, a p wave or a primary wave and that is the same kind of frequency as what we hear. So that's often what we hear coming before we hear, feel the ground shaking. And the second wave or the secondary wave is the one that makes the ground shake. So often we hear an earthquake coming and then we feel the ground shaking. And that's because of those two waves. So like Shelley is saying, she didn't hear the Christchurch one coming because it was so close. The P wave and this wave are so close together. Everything happened at once. And I've also heard reports of sometimes when people hear that first wave, that P wave, but then the second wave is not very, not very strong. So they just hear sound, but they don't actually feel the earthquake, like Shelley was saying too. So like she says, the no two earthquakes are the same. They all happen quite differently. And we feel them quite differently depending on where we are. So when I was the age of these students at um, Canary School here, I lived in Hanma Springs in the Anangahua earthquake hit. And because we're in a rural area, I was woken up in the middle of the night by dogs barking, all of the farm dogs and all of the, it was a very still night. And you could hear them from miles and miles, kilometres away. And that's what woke us up first. And then the earthquake came. So that might be, for you people in Canary, that might be the first thing you hear. Sorry. They do say that animals can sense earthquakes better than us. In 1931, during the Napier earthquake, all the cows sat down just before the earthquake happened. And it was almost as if they had a feeling it was on its way and they would be safer if they were sitting down. Yeah. Okay, we've got to say goodbye to Alice because the bell has rung and yeah. she's got other commitments. Yeah, I'm um, going to start my road show, but really lovely to speak to you all and some really awesome questions. Thanks for joining us. Good stuff. Thanks, mm -hmm. Alice. And I, I saw somebody up there before that looked like they had a burning question. So we've got time to answer that one if you've still got it. Otherwise, we'll be over and out and you can watch the videos, which will be online tomorrow. Lots more questions there. <laughs> Any other questions? One more coming. What was the longest earthquake we've ever had? Good question. Yeah. Good question. It's a fault length, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, earthquakes. Um, sort of. Again, it, each earthquake is different. But with a big earthquake like a magnitude eight, 
we'd expect the ground to move maybe for two, maybe for even three minutes. Um, but sometimes it, it could be shorter than that too. It depends where you are. And it also it depends on what kind of ground you're, you're sitting on in your house. So if you're living on a, a sort of a beachy place or a sandy place, you might feel more shaking that goes on for longer. But if you're on a different kind of more solid ground, then it might not feel quite so much shaking. So it really depends where you are at the time, but maybe a couple of minutes worth of shaking. But for smaller earthquakes, it would just be maybe 10 or 15 or, or 20 seconds at the most. Yeah. Well, just to reassure you, the New Zealand has a much better building code than somewhere like Turkey, where the earthquake has happened and a whole lot of buildings have collapsed, like one on top of the other. So if you're in a building, it's a lot less likely to fall down under a long earthquake than overseas. That's right. So true. Okay, we've got time for one last question. Um, what would happen if we had a magnitude 10 earthquake on the Alpine Fault? Yeah, I can tell you now that that won't happen. <laughs> um, it's just a way that we measure earthquakes using magnitude. A magnitude 10 earthquake is almost impossible to happen. The, the, the 9.6 that I was telling you about before in Chile, that's the biggest one that we've ever recorded. And it's just because of the way they do the maths on uh, working out magnitude. It's just not really possible to have one that big, actually. So don't worry. We kind of have a good handle on how big uh, the Alpine Fold earthquake could be. It's sort of within the range of 7.8 to 8.2, but it's almost certainly not going to be bigger than that. Yeah. It's good to know. Excellent. Oh, well, thank you very much for taking part this morning. It has been a pleasure talking to you. And you can unmute your microphone if you like and say a big goodbye. Well done, guys. Bye bye. 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 Bye.